Welcome to the Life Point Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are currently preaching through a series titled, Give Your Servant Wisdom, a series on the rise and fall of King Solomon. In our sermon today, Pastor Cody Cannon will be preaching through 1 Kings chapter 2. Good morning, church. If you guys would, uh, why don't you turn to 1 Kings chapter 2. We'll cover that whole chapter today. Uh, spend a lot of time reading more so in, in verses uh, 1 through 12, and then I'll kind of narrate the last giant bloody chunk at the end. Um, but I want to begin this morning. Uh, this morning as we come to the text, the primary thing that just we're going to talk about is, is safety, security, and what the kingdoms of this world offer us in terms of those two things, safety and security. Um, and because of that, I, I wanted to begin with a recent, current, and personal story. In the early morning hours of Christmas Eve, my wife Jamie drove to a hospital in Southern California to hold our adopted daughter, Penny. And nothing was going to stop Jamie. Not a lack of sleep, not a canceled flight, not an intimidating, confusing situation filled with social workers and nurses and doctors, uh, let alone uh, what would actually come of Penny with all of the different things that were in her system at the time. All Jamie cared about was getting to Penny so that she could hold her, so that Penny could finally feel safe. You see, Penny spent nine months being abused in the womb. She was beat up by neglect and many drugs. She was being told over and over again and shown over and over again that she was unwanted and unloved. And in her very short life, Penny had never known safety. And her first two days outside of the womb were full of her agonizing and screaming and shaking, experiencing withdrawals that she couldn't obviously figure out um, or describe for us. But Jamie was determined to change all of that. And from the second that the nurses put Penny in Jamie's arms, Penny was changed. She was transformed. We had multiple nurses and doctors tell us that because of what Jamie was doing, Penny was experiencing change and healing that she wouldn't have otherwise experienced. We even had one doctor tell us that what Jamie was doing was a form of care for her that the doctors and nurses could not provide. And the reason that all of this came to mind this morning, apart from Penny keeping me up all night, was what I wanted to share with you this morning from 1 Kings 2 was the, the truth that safety changes us forever. Security for us, for people like us, transforms us, especially as we become aware of danger. Safety changes us. And the entire Bible reveals to us that God wants us to know that we are safe. The entire Bible, metaphor after metaphor, is God wanting us to understand that we are secure. He has gone through great lengths to provide that safety for us. 
And this matters to people like us because we want it too. We want safety. We want security. We spend our whole lives pursuing security just for that glimpse of feeling safe. We just look for it in the wrong places, right? We think that we make a certain amount of money that ought to come with it, a feeling of security. We'll round some corner, we'll jump some fence and there'll be greener grass over there and we'll have enough then, right? Now we have enough, I'm safe. Or we want a a spouse so bad believing that being married will provide for us the security that we're longing for. Or just being liked, people approving of us, giving us what um, we're hoping for, that'll give us security. Or it trickles its way into our politics thinking that this policy or this politician will provide with what they do, what what they accomplish, they'll provide the safety we're hoping for. Or just our health. We think that we make all the right decisions, we do all the right things, then we can anticipate a life of safety. But every time a healthy, young, married, rich celebrity is unhappy, anxious, or even suicidal, we are handed another parable teaching us that none of those things work. None of those things are ultimate. And every time we read in scripture of a human king that falls short of everything that they promised, every time we find a kingdom of this world falling short of everything that we hoped for, that is God whispering to us again, let me take you into my arms and I will give you the safety that you're longing for. Come to me, stay here, and I will give you the security that you wanted your whole life. And that's what we're going to see in the negative in 1 Kings chapter two. So if chapter one was the asking the question, who will be king? Who is the one who is worthy to be king? At the end of the chapter, we got our definitive answer. It's Solomon. He's the rightful one, the king that's supposed to be on the throne. If that was the question in chapter one, then the question in chapter two is, is the kingdom secure? So Solomon's king, is it going to be okay? Is the kingdom safe in Solomon's hands? And we actually get the answer to that question explicitly in the passage. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Go all the way to the end of the passage. Frames the entire action in chapter two. The very end, last words. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So if the question is, is Solomon's kingdom secure? The answer here is yes, firmly established. David dies, leaves it to Solomon, and it is firmly established in his hands. (laughs) And then we keep reading, right? And we realize we're set up to be pretty disappointed. Firmly established doesn't mean what we maybe thought it meant at first. So it is secure, according to this chapter, at least for now, But none of us really wants that. Who cares, right? What good is that? None of us really wants temporary security, right? 
That's not what we were longing for. We, we weren't hoping for fading safety. What good is that? In fact, that is one of the most incredibly stressful ways to live our lives, right? Wondering when the security is gonna run out is one of the most all-consuming forms of anxiety that we could possibly experience, right? Put that in any context. I think I have enough money, but what if it runs out? I think I found the one that I'm gonna be with forever, but what if they run out? I think these people like me, but what if they don't, right? Just over and over and over again. That's not good. That's just a consistent, consuming form of anxiety that consumes our lives. That's not the safety that we long for. So the real question, the one that really matters to people like us, is the question, will the kingdom of Solomon be safe for long, for good? Can it stand firmly established forever? And in chapter two, what we're gonna do is we're gonna examine the ways that David and Solomon intend to keep the kingdom of God safe under the reign of Solomon. We're gonna examine them and we're not just gonna buy in right away. We're gonna think about it. Say, well, will that, will that work? Should I take that road to safety? Is this going to be enough for me to be secure? All right, look with me if you would at chapter two, starting in verse one, we'll read through verse four. Hear the word of the Lord. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Now, that gives us a little reason to pause and give us some realistic expectation of what's gonna happen in the life of Solomon, right? I am a, David, greatest king that Israel's ever had, declares, I I'm about to go the way that literally every other human goes. So let's have some sober uh, expectations of what Solomon can accomplish with his life. All right, here's David's instructions. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. Why? That you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. This is God's word. And so I want to take one second, because I just kept thinking about this, so I thought I'd invite you to think about it too. These are the last words of David. It, it, keep reading. He dies. He does go the way of all the earth. He dies. These are his last words. And he, it's two parts. We'll look at the second part in a minute. But that was what he decided to say first. And so I want to invite you to think about this morning what uh, we're not always afforded the opportunity to sort of share our last words, right? For most of us, that will probably be taken away from us in some way, shape, or fashion, whether we die in a tragedy or our minds slipping as we get old, whatever. We just don't tend to get to do that. So I thought I'd ask you, what would you want your last words to be? And who would you want to say them to? What would you want your last words to be? And who would you want to say them to? And then I thought of saying this to you. Why don't you just go say them now? 
right? Here's your opportunity. Whatever words popped into your head, go say those. To whoever, whatever person popped into your head, go, go say those to that person. Why, what's the point in waiting till you're on your deathbed like David? What would you say? Well, I hope you might start somewhere uh, like where David starts. And what he says here in this first part of his goodbye speech is safe, he offers safety through obedience to God. That's where you'll be safe, Solomon. That's where the kingdom will be safe, Solomon. In fact, he even says that if you obey, he says you will prosper in all that you do, wherever you turn, and God will keep his promise to me. And his promise to me is that all of my sons and their sons will continue to reign on the throne forever as long as they obey me with all of their hearts. So essentially, David looks Solomon in his eyes and says, son, read your Bible and do what it says. Read your Bible, do what it says. Don't, don't veer off to the right or to the left. Walk in the ways that the Lord has prescribed in the scriptures. Read it and do what it says. And what I wanna point out about this is for us in our lives, we tend to feel like God is inactive, right? And, and he certainly is, actually, in these first two chapters of, of 1 Kings. I pointed this out last week. He's, just, he's in the background at best. He's spoken about very minimally, and he's not active in any way, shape, or fashion. These are humans on uh, center stage in First and Second, or, or First cha Kings chapters one and two. It's humans, and the Lord's sort of in the background. He is very inactive. But here, in this goodbye speech from David, his words God's words take center stage. And I think that ought to say something to people like us. When we would accuse God at, of being distant, we don't feel like he is close to us. We feel like God is inactive in our lives. I think we ought to come to this uh, call from the, the King David where he says his word is right there in front of you. Do what it says. And what that says to, to us is if God never speaks again, beloved, if God never acts in our lives in some miraculous sort of pillar of fire type of way, he has said enough. He has said enough. Even if he does not answer all of our questions, even if he, doesn't, he never puts to rest all of our doubts, what he has said is sufficient for any of us to trust him. What he has said is enough for us to know that he is trustworthy and faithful. And I wanna say this bluntly, beloved, he does not owe us anything. He does not owe us anything. He is God and he has spoken and we are called to obey him as our master, as our Lord, as our king. And here, uh, there is a challenge, right? I think to people who have any type of influence over any other types of humans, any types of leaders, whether that's parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, bosses, teachers, friends. I think the, the question put forth is, you know, this, this big statement here, if your sons pay close attention to all that I've taught. But that's like, that's on David, right? That's like for David to ask the question, well, did I teach Solomon how to do that? 
And I think that challenges any of us that may have any type of influence over any other types of human beings. How are we guiding those people toward obedience to the Lord? We ought not to knock them over the head and say, why aren't you obeying the Lord if we have not in fact taught them, helped them, guided them towards obedience to the Lord. David has no right to say, hey, do this stuff so God keeps his promises if David himself has never taught him to obey the Lord. And this matters so much to us because there is a promise here that comes with this obedience. The promise is obedience to God here and now is the safest place we could ever be. Obedience to God is the safest place in a dangerous world. That's what he says here when he says, if you do this, if you keep the charge of the Lord, you walk in his ways, you keep his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, he says, that you may prosper in all that you do wherever you turn. Many translations just translate that prosper word as success. Success. Now it's important to note that those words don't really help people like you and me. They're good words, that's what it means, but our, in our 21st century American framework, we don't really have a good category here for what David actually means. This is prosper or success according to God. That's not where our minds go, right? Not at all. You hear success, you hear prosper. We have, we have such a hard time getting what our initial reaction is to that. It is material things, right? It is comfort, physical safety. It is health and wealth. That, those are the things that come to mind in first and foremost. You hear success, you think a CEO, right? You think prosperous, you think millionaire. We, we can't help it. That, that's our framework for those words, but that is not what prosper or success means here. It is prosperous, it is success according to God. It means whatever we were made to be, that is what we will be. So, so what he's saying here, if, if obedience to God will lead to our growth in flourishing in whatever God designed us to be. That's the promise here. You obey God, you will become, you will grow more and more into the human being that God designed you to be. Now, if we were uh, always made ultimately to be super rich and super comfortable and physically safe all of the time, then yes, that is exactly what prosper means. And that is the promise here. If that is what God wanted for us all the time, then yes, that is exactly what prosper and success means. But that cannot be what it means. Why? Would you allow Jesus to obliterate that category in your mind? To redefine prosper and success. Jesus was the most successful person that ever lived. Jesus was the most prosperous human being that ever walked this earth. He was the most flourishing human being that ever lived. He, and he was completely obedient, perfectly, to the law of God, and he prospered completely because of it. Where did that lead him? Comfort, wealth, physical safety? Is that where he was led at all? Then can you please, can we please 
obliterate our 21st century American category of prosperous and success. That's not what God meant. And we see that in Jesus. Let him redefine that for us and let us run back to him over and over and over again and let him be the one that defines that for us. Because no, his obedience to God did not lead him to comfort, wealth, or physical safety. It led him to a cross. It led him to suffering. It led him to giving his life away for our sins, for your sins, for my sins. Though he never deserved that death, he took it willingly for our sake. And so that is the promise. Obedience to God is the safest place we could be. But that might mean we end up hanging from a cross. Now, if the first half of David's word, final words sort of sound like a, a dying father's passing on of final instructions for his beloved son, the second half sounds like a mafia mob boss putting out a final hit on his last remaining enemies, right? He almost like shifts gears so fast that he's like, son, I really love you. Walk in the ways of the Lord. Read your Bible. Study it and do what it says. And then I hate all these other people. I really want them all to die. And that was like almost like, like that quick, right? So look with me at verse five. Moreover, along with read your Bible, you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me. And I just lean into these names, by the way. Like, I don't know how to say them all, okay? How he dealt with two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace, but deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty, they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there is also uh, with you Shimei the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Berahim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Parentheses, but I didn't say anything about you not killing him. Back to the story. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray, down, his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Verse 10, and David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. So first half of the speech, son, do the right thing. Second half of the speech, murder everybody, right? This is like, hey, you know what these guys did? Go take care of them. Right, and that, that was really like kind of like flick of the wrist, like go take care of him, right? But, but did you hear what he gives credit to knowing what Solomon will do? It's wisdom. Look at verse six. Act therefore according to your wisdom. And he says it again, verse nine. Do not hold him guiltless for you are a wise man. So what David promises here is safety through human wisdom. Do the stuff that makes sense to you. You're a smart guy. Go take care of it. And, and some of these names here uh, are, you know, people that he is going to, we'll see in a moment, 
take care of. But what, he, what, um, what David essentially says to him is one of the most, and I don't want to distance ourselves from David, because everything he says makes complete sense to us. It is, it is, it is what we would do. Okay, that's what we mean when we say human wisdom and what we got to do with David's declaration that Solomon is a wise person is we need to read it through the lens of chapter three because David declares, you're a wise man, go murder those people. In chapter three, Solomon comes to a conclusion. Lord, I am not wise. Give me wisdom. That's what we'll look at next week. David declares, you're wise, kill people. And Solomon comes to a conclusion. Something about what takes place in chapter two leads him to the conclusion in chapter three, I need wisdom. I don't have wisdom. I, I need you, God, to give me wisdom that comes from you. Because whatever happens in chapter two is not that. And essentially what David says is, be nice to the people that were nice to me and kill everybody else. And while that sounds gruesome, that makes perfect sense to us, right? That's, that is our idea and has been since we were kids. That is our idea of fairness. That is our idea of justice. An eye for an eye makes complete sense to us. That is epitome of human wisdom. That is the epitome of what we, how we think the world ought to go. Oh, that guy bullied you, dad, when you were getting kicked out of Jerusalem by your son who rebelled against you? Yeah, that guy should die. Oh, that guy Joab killed a couple of guys when he shouldn't have been killing guys? Yeah, that guy should die. And we should be able to step back from that and say, yeah, that's what I would do. And what David, the conclusion David comes to or what he says almost explicitly to Solomon is, you're a smart guy. So use your power, use your strength, leverage your influence, and that is how you will make sure you stay safe. Use your power. Oh man, is there anything more wisdom? Is, is there anything more humanly wise than that? Is there anything more American than that? You're powerful. Use it to get ahead in life. Smart enough to leverage your influence? Do it. It's the right thing to do. And we have to admit, this makes a lot of sense to us. I'm not sure we would do differently. But later on, I imagine old man Solomon at this point reflecting on different things that have happened in his life. Likely this pretty bloody scene that we'll look over in a second. And he writes in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25, there's a way that seems right to a man. There is a wisdom that comes from humans, but its end is the way to death. That has to be one of the most sobering verses. And I think I'll remind us of this verse regularly this year. One of the most sobering verses, because it essentially says there's something that appears totally right to us makes perfect sense to us, seems absolutely correct, seems like we could never argue with it, there's not a plausible argument against it, and it's not just bad, according to Solomon, it actually directs us and guides us toward death. And that's exactly what, Sol what David's advice leads to. Now, not immediately Solomon's death, but the death, death of four others. 
his advice, what seemed wise to him, led to the death of four others. So the last thing that David uh, commissioned Solomon to do is provide safety through destroying all enemies. And he goes to work. He goes to work. What you'll find in uh, the, this, this kind of big chapter, bloody, gruesome chapter, is Solomon deals with four people, not three, and he does not tell us, the, the author does not tell us what he does with Barzillai, the, the guy that was actually nice, and he said, David says, hey, he helped me bring him to my table. We don't even find out if Solomon did that or not. We only find out that he kills four people. One, three of them immediately, one of them through exile. So we only read about violent things. So let's march our way through this and see what human wisdom produced in, in uh, Israel. First, we see Adonijah again. Now, Adonijah last week was the guy who tried to become king instead of Solomon through rebellion, right? And last week, he was super explicit, overt about it. He was all bold. He, he started a whole rebellion. He recruited people. He was throwing a party for himself, right? Tried to be king. That didn't work out. He should have been killed, but Solomon said to him what? If you don't stir up any more trouble, I'll let you live. So then in this chapter, he takes a more subtle approach. Remember last week, that lady that they brought to David to try to keep him warm, that really awkward scene that I had to preach through, right? What, it, uh, what Adonijah says here is, let me have that lady as my wife. See, this is sort of like a back door towards the throne, right? Because you're saying, hey, if I marry the king's wife, then I am the rightful king. Well, he goes to Bathsheba, who is Solomon's mom, and she sees right through it. Solomon sees right through it. He gets real mad, actually, and he then kills Adonijah. Scratch him off the list. But then we get a guy that David didn't really talk about, a guy named Abiathar, who is a priest, uh, and he joined Adonijah's rebellion. We, we, we read about him real quick last week, and David doesn't, or Solomon doesn't kill him immediately. He just fires him. So he removes from him his entire livelihood and priests, that's, that's, that's the only way they could survive. They were dependent on the gifts of others to even eat and then he's booted out and exiled and so that's like a, a, a slow, painful death um, or, or something something much worse, okay? So that's Abiathar. Then you got Joab. Now, Joab's a real bad guy. We read about him in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Uh, he does a lot of bloody things, he, and he did. He killed two guys in cold blood. He was mad at him, killed him. But then, on top of that, he joined Adonijah's rebellion last week as well. He's making moves, right? And he tries to take the same route that Adonijah took last week by jumping up, grabbing the horns of the altar and, you know, kind of whining and pleading his case that don't kill me, please. Doesn't work at all. Solomon pulls him down and his hitman Beniah just kills him. So that's over. Joab's dead. Then we got Shimei, or Shimei, however you want to say that. This guy, he had it coming for a long time. I'll tell you what. He was supporter of Saul, and when David's son Absalom was, was trying to kick David out, David was leaving Jerusalem, and Shimei, he stood by, threw rocks at David, and he mocked him and, and, and cursed him as he was leaving crazy story, right? And, and his, his followers, David's followers, wanted to kill him right then, and he said, no, 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 I'm not gonna kill him. Well, David can hold a grudge, because he's like, I said I wouldn't kill him then, but Solomon, hey, go take care of him, and he does. He actually, he does in a slow way. He first puts him on house arrest, says, don't ever leave your house, and then 
Three years later, he does leave his house and then he kills him. You know, that's how that, all that goes. So four guys essentially immediately destroyed as sort of Solomon's first acts as king in order to firmly establish the kingdom. Now, we, we learn a bunch of stuff from this story. The first one is that I wanna see, I want us to see in all, of the, all four of these guys, I never want us to remove ourselves too quickly. There's no good guys and bad guys here. It's all bad guys, all of us. We see ourselves here. One of the things we learn from these guys is the problems with mercy. We, mercy oftentimes teaches us or shows us or we take it to this direction that we assume that we got away with it, right? Last week, Adonijah, prime example, comes up to Solomon, begs for his life. Solomon says, if you don't cause any more trouble, dude, you'll be alive, I won't kill you. Next week, he's trying to find another way to the throne and he dies, right? He, he got the mercy, he thought he got a second chance, and basically what we do is we just assume when we receive mercy that we can just, we got away with it, so we can just do now whatever we want. We take for granted the grace of God. And this, by the way, is an ancient sin, ancient sin. Like, everybody's been doing this. As soon as we receive this incredible, breathtaking mercy of God, our first thought is, well, then I could just say sorry, like when I do stuff, right? You're just so full of forgiveness, then I could just say like my bad and I just won't do it anymore and then I go and do it again and you'll just do the same thing all over again. That's our, that's our logic. And instead of receiving mercy and turning from our sin, we end up taking mercy for granted. All the people in this story were given multiple chances. Adonijah is just one example. Their responses to mercy was to rebel again. They deserved death for their previous rebellion before, but they received mercy. But when the opportunity to rebel came up again, they took it. But here we find, and in this story, we find that mercy ran out. This chance, this chance, this chance, then ultimately, judgment. Judgment. Think about like Shimmy's story, right? That was a long time ago that he mocked David and then all the way up to, he didn't turn from his sins, didn't at all say sorry, repent and turn. And in fact, when he's given instructions, <laughs> merciful instructions, house arrest, I won't kill you. Now nah, I'm gonna go over here and, and then leave. And he gets killed. That's what we do. It's what we do. But what we learn here in this story is something that I want us to understand. Delayed judgment is still judgment. It's not better it's not better. Just because there's a window, a merciful, gracious window where judgment is delayed, that's not better. Just because we enjoy some false sense of security for some amount of time doesn't mean that we're secure forever. And so that we ought to ask the question, has the mercy that I received given me true safety? Have I turned from the things that were hurting me? And have I ran, am I secure or Am I abusing it by just continuing in my sins? So we come to the end of the story and we're told, Solomon, the kingdom is firmly established in his hands. Solomon destroyed all of his enemies. He did exactly what David said, but we are left to ask the question and we ought to ask the question, was it good or was it bad that he did all of that, that he killed all of them? And it doesn't say, 
It doesn't say, but like I warned us last week, right? We don't just, oh, it's in the Bible, so it's good. It's in the Bible, so that's what people should do. They should kill people when they do them wrong a long time ago, right? That's not how we read these stories. But we ought to ask, is it good or is it bad? And, and the answer is it doesn't really answer it. It's probably somewhere in between. And you read that a lot in the Old Testament, a lot of mixed motives, right? They do the wrong thing for the right reasons or the right thing for the wrong reasons, right? You, we read that all the way through. But one thing that we can say for sure is what Solomon did was normal, typical. It's the same as all other kingdoms that have existed before him. It's what all other kingdoms and empires have done after him. No different. Security through murdering everybody else is the way of all kingdoms. He did what all other kings do. The problem is, is that killing everybody to secure the kingdom doesn't deal with the real problem. Sure, Adonijah's dead, but someone else will want to be king, right? What, are you going to go kill every able-bodied, ambitious young man in the entirety of Israel, right? Someone's going to want to take that throne, and even if Solomon killed every other human enemy that existed, the truth is he can't do anything about his greatest enemy, which is himself, his own heart. Make no mistake, Solomon's kingdom crashes and burns. And what follows his reign is one tragedy after another. Just a whole history of tragedy after tragedy after tragedy for hundreds of years. And his downfall does not come from enemies outside of himself. It will be his own heart that leads him astray. And so slaughtering everybody does absolutely nothing to take care of the real problem. So we have, to answer, we have the answer to our question. Is the kingdom of Solomon safe for long? Is it secure? Are any kingdoms or any empires in this world secure or safe for long? And the answer is no. Not for long at all. And we know that from if we keep reading, but we also know that when we just examine all of history, they just fall constantly. There are no kingdoms that last. There never has been an empire that was safe or has lasted for very long at all, right? The Roman Empire crushed it, but they fell. They lasted a long time, but they fell. They all crashed and burned sooner than later. And none of them made good on the security and safety that they promised, except one. The kingdom of God that we've been reading about since Genesis 1, that we read about through Revelation 22, that we're reading about here, and that you, as a follower of Christ, are a part of right now has stood the tests of time. Both, it's endured in spite time and in spite of very flawed and foolish kings. The kingdom of God is safe and the citizens of the kingdom of God are safe, secure, and will last forever. Why? Because the king of the kingdom of God is a forever king. And if you belong to him, you belong to his kingdom. You're safe the safety that you are promised in Christ is this. Listen, you are as safe in the kingdom of God as the king himself is. You are as safe in the kingdom as the king himself is. He has so brought you in to his kingdom, not just to participate, 
but he has so brought you in that his safety is now actually tied to yours and vice versa. You are in Christ the King. And so I'm gonna tell you about this, the last part of this sermon. But I wanna, I wanna do this first. If you are in this room and you're not a Christian, or you're still sort of figuring out what that means or what that looks like in your life, um, then I wanna invite you in to be a part of this kingdom. And I'm gonna show you and tell you what that means and what that looks like. Uh, and, but part of you probably already knows what it means. It means like what you would do, right? You would, you would say that I don't want anything to do. You would, you would get rid of all other would-be kings, all other allegiances, and you would come to this one king. You would bow before him, and you would give yourself to him and say, I belong to you. I am a part of your kingdom. And he'll, and he'll receive you, and that's good news. But your maybe more personal question would be something more along the lines of, what about me, though? Okay, like, okay, I hear you. I'm invited. We're invited. But what about me? I know me. I know me enough to know uh, that if they were, you know, really checking our past, checking our, you know, uh, man, what did you do? Oh, no, I don't know if you could be in. If we were checking us, I think a lot of us would feel like we're getting booted. So what about me? Will the kingdom of Jesus be safe for me? And here's what I want you to understand. Here's what I want you to understand. This kingdom is not like any other kingdom. It obliterates all other categories for kingdoms. It tears them all down. It rips them all to shreds. And there's a lot of verses that I could go to, but I wanna read you just one passage, and I wanna show you how upside down this particular kingdom is, okay? We'll do this quickly. It says, adopt the same attitude in Philippians 2, it says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Listen to this king. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or gripped or held onto. Instead, what did he do? He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself. Look at the initiative. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, listen to where he is now. God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every other name so that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That is every other kingdom, every other king, every other power, empire, everything else that anybody could ever offer you that might provide safety, that might provide security. What he is saying here is all of it is gonna bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, of God the Father. That's where he is. He is seated on the throne, highly exalted over every other kingdom and king that has ever existed. And the promise to people like you and me is, if you would trust in him, you're there too. You're there too. Even now, in some weird way, we are as good as seated next to him at that throne. How do he do this? It's not what you would think. First, he provides us safety through obedience to God. He perfectly obeyed God, perfectly. Where did that get him? I've already talked about this. It says right there, when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to God to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And then Jesus promised that obedience to his words would lead us to the same safety, same security, same flourishing, right? You know, he told the story. Like if you take these words of mine and you put them into practice, you know, you're like that guy that built his house on a solid foundation. And when the rains came, it stood and it was fine, right? But if you hear his words and you don't put them into practice, you do not obey what he says, it's like, well, you're like the fool that built his, hand on, built his house on some sand and when the rains came, it fell down. That's what he said. Obey him and you'll prosper. That's what he said. And rains come for all of us. The only question that we need to ask ourselves is what I'm building my life on safe? Is it sturdy? Can it endure? Will it last? Second way he provides us safety is not what you would think. He's God. It says right there, he's God. And yet he didn't feel like that was what he needed to exploit or hold on to. Instead, he provided us safety through human weakness. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Do you see how counterintuitive that is to people like us? What did David say? You're a wise man. Use your power and get what you want. Use your influence. Use your strength. Tear the rest of it down. Not Jesus. Jesus got down on his hands and his knees and he washed the feet of a bunch of nasty disciples and said, no servant is above his master. Now, you go do what I did. He didn't say use power. He said go and serve. Go and love like him. That's our king. Third and finally, Solomon went and slaughtered all his enemies to provide safety for his kingdom. What did Jesus do with his? He provides us safety through dying for his enemies. Dying for us. And you need to see yourself as that. I know that's hard for a second. You need to see yourself as an enemy. I, in Romans 5, 8, it says that well, um, God proved his love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But I think too often we're too tempted to see sinners as like people who do bad stuff, right? Like, oh, my bad, right? Like, um, uh, it's on accident. Just two verses later in Romans 5, 10, it says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more have we been reconciled? Will we be saved, rescued, secure, safe by his life. And you need to see that. We weren't indifferent towards God. We, weren't, we were Adonijah. We were trying to boot Jesus off his throne. We thought we belonged there. That's our spot. We'll get there by any means necessary. We wanted to be king. We were his enemies to the throne. And yet then and there, he died for us. Now, this chapter of scripture, I kind of breeze through the bloody parts, but it, it, I'd encourage you to read through it and see what I mean, but this chapter is rather disturbing. It's shocking, it's bloody, it's even petty, and overall it's just really violent. And whether Solomon's motives were good or bad, we just don't really know, somewhere in the middle. But what we can say for sure, beloved, is that thank God, this is not how God deals with his enemies who trust in him. As we participated in dragging Jesus to a cross and nailing him to those pieces of wood, he prayed for you 
he prayed for me and said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That's how he treats his enemies as he forgives them by dying in their place. Would you trust this king today? Trust this king and be safe in his kingdom. And I wanna close with this. Safety isn't ultimately about how we feel. It's not. It, it, now, I don't wanna belittle that because it is so good to feel safe. It is so good to feel secure. But how we feel doesn't prove anything. The healthy person might feel safe right up until they realize that they aren't. The billionaire has probably felt secure for their, most of their lives right up until the moment that they weren't. And the Christian in the third world country might not feel safe for their entire life right up until the moment they find out they were safer than they could have ever imagined the entire time. So how we feel doesn't prove anything to us. What we have is what God has promised us and what he has promised us is that you are as safe in this kingdom as the king himself is. Sometimes you feel it, most times you don't. And in those moments you don't feel it, remind yourself who your king is and what he did to provide you with that safety. And I'm reminded here again of little Penny. She was spent two days outside of the womb with you know, nurses trying to hold her and stuff like that. Screaming, shaking, experiencing lots of withdrawal symptoms. She didn't know we were coming. She didn't know Jamie was on her way. And she didn't ask for us. But we got to get, when we got there, when me and Jamie got there, we told her, we told her a bunch of things. But one of the things we said over and over again is, you're safe now. You're safe now. Believe us, you're safe now. And you never have to feel unwanted or unloved ever again. That's the promise from this king of kings. Come to him. You may not have asked for a king like this that washes feet and dies on crosses, but he has promised that if you come to him, you're safe. You're safe. And you will never feel unwanted or unloved again. Come to him. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for this picture. This In the negative with Solomon and David, their kingdom makes so much sense to us. It does until we look at Jesus. And I pray that over and over again, Father, we are able to see, to see how much better Jesus is. This good king who lays down his life for the sake of his enemies to rescue them and to make them safe. Thank you, Father. Would you help us to trust him? Lord, trust this king and follow after him. I pray that all in Christ's name.